Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Bart Hennephoff, who is a guitarist and producer hailing from the Netherlands. His ex-band Textures released five studio albums, toured the world over, and signed record deals with both Listenable Records and Nuclear Blast. He now teaches at Metal Guitar the Metal Guitar School of the Netherlands, alongside Within Temptation guitarist Ruud Julie, who we previously had as a guest on this podcast. I'm a huge fan of Texture's music and saw them play for the first time back in 2004 on the Cult of Luna Salvation Tour, before I had even joined my first proper band. Anyway, let's chat to Bart. Bart Hennephoff, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Hi, man. Hi. Great to be here. Thanks for being here. So just out of curiosity, what is the hardest thing... So I know you do a bunch of teaching. What's the hardest thing to get somebody to get through their thick ass skull when uh, <laughs> they want to get really, really good at guitar? Do What do you find to be the hardest thing that you think would make the biggest difference that people just seem to refuse to, to do? And then maybe one day, five years later, they start doing it and they're like, damn it. Why didn't I listen to you? <laughs> yeah, I recognize it and also recognize it of myself. And that is uh, playing <laughs> slow, practicing slow, slowly, just uh, slow rhythms, a simple scale or simple exercise and practice that slow or practice a song or a riff slow if you want to learn a song uh, before you go to the real tempo. That that's the main thing. Yeah, I also saw that with myself. Like when you're a teenager, you want to learn as fast as possible, play as fa- many songs as possible, and then yeah, you just don't want to slow down, you know. But if you do it and you get comfortable with it, then it's easier to speed the the thing up, and then yeah, it's more easy to play anything fast if you really master it in a slow version. What does slow mean? Slow as in uh, way slower than the original. If a song is in, uh, let's say, 150 BPM, practice it at uh, 70 BPM, you know? Okay. Or uh, if you're used to doing an exercise at 180 BPM, practice it at 100 BPM. Just slow and really listen to yourself and listen to all the notes that you play and make sure every note is clear without any noise and just full tone. That's what I mean. The- like, you know, we as guitar players, we concentrate on constantly wanting it to get faster. But I actually think most things that I've ever tried are always more difficult the slower I go. Because I think we as humans just constantly want to push the beat 
and getting in time, the slower you go, just gets more and more difficult. I agree. Well, when you make things too slow, they start to lose the musical, its musical identity to a degree. If you go too slow, the glue that holds the musical idea together will start to come apart depending on how slow you're going. And then it just starts to turn into notes, right? Like individual notes. And I think that that's a lot harder for people. It's a lot harder also mentally to wrap their head around. This is the same piece of music, the same melody, same riff, just like walking through the ocean with combat boots on against the current slow. (laughs) (laughs) There's actually a really good example of this um, for the Mashriga fans out there. It's uh, Concatenation, which is on uh, Chaosphere. And if you listen to Rare Tracks, they actually did an extreme slowed down version of that song, which sounds like a completely different song, unless you know what you're listening for. Mm, nice. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Bart? You know, the, you know the track. No, I I've, I've, haven't heard that, I must say. Oh, really? Well, there's a Christmas present for you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Concatenation. Yeah. But you guys agree with me, right? There becomes a point where you slow something down so much that it's almost like not even music anymore. It's just notes or or it's a different piece of music. It's a different riff. Yeah. yeah. It starts, it's musical identity changes. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because the danger, I think, in going too slow is that you start to learn whatever the new riff is, the slow riff starts to become the riff. That's how you start to think about it. So I think that, well, first of all, obviously I agree, slow things down to speed them up. You need to make sure that you're not slowing it down so much that you're losing sight of what it is you're trying to learn how to play. True. Also true. Yeah, I agree. Also, especially when you're playing riffs, I think, or a melody. When you slow things down as a melody... You you begin to see your timing more and more. You you know like you're playing a melody or a, a lick, and and certain part of the lick you might speed up uh, unconsciously, and if you slow it down, then you see more and more. Okay, at that part I speed up, but if you play too slow, yeah, then every note is the same, and it doesn't. It's not a problem anymore. That's true. It almost doesn't feel like music anymore, or just like a different piece of music. Yeah. Starts to sound like Carnate or Sun. <laughs> yeah. Are they called Sun or Sun O? I always called them Sun. I never really thought the O was meant to be an O. It was almost like a symbol to me. Yeah, I don't know. A silent O. Yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what language has a silent O, but... I, I remember about playing slow, like with textures we had in the past, every album we had some like clean picking parts almost ambient parts you know and those are pretty slow like just slow melodies i remember in the beginning i that was the hardest part of the set for me to play that next to the thrashy riffs we have Uh, those things in the beginning were super hard to do especially live because you have a clean sound and you play slow uh yeah that's that's like felt like impossible so I, I trained that in the beginning a lot and now I'm comfortable with it but uh, I re- really remember it was like oh man this clean part again it should be the most easy part to play but uh 
yeah, I don't know. If you never really practiced it, then it's, it's really hard to do that. I still find that when it comes to recording albums, that those slow, clean parts are always the most difficult to nail, mainly because you're not hiding behind a wall of noise. Yes. You know, <laughs> there's a element of forgiveness with distortion or overdrive, and you don't get that forgiveness with a clean sound with a delay on it. One little mistake and you can hear it for more than once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so... The delay gives you a little forgiveness, a little. A little, but still, if you play a note wrong or you don't quite play it right, you can really tell. Yeah, that's why I always used to practice metal at low gain. So I know some people practice unplugged. I never understood that because I feel like controlling the distortion and the noise is a part of playing your riffs. You have to be able to hear the noise. But I would uh, practice pretty low gain anyways, just to keep myself honest, to make sure that every pick stroke was exactly what it needed to be. I, I definitely feel like distortion and effects are super forgiving. I wonder actually, people listening, how many of them are trying to learn parts or trying to get better guitar, but have the gain dialed up to eight or something and are learning solos with reverb and delay and effects going on and basically fooling themselves into thinking that they're a lot better than they actually are. I wonder. They're a lot like that. I think that people. <laughs> I yeah. think people with fret wraps do that too. <laughs> yeah, you hate fret wraps, don't you? No, I don't hate them. I hate when they're used to clearly cover up bad playing. Clearly. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. But for for real though, I do think that it's very natural to want to sound good. And there's this somewhat easy mode you can go on with playing where, I mean, I don't want to say easy mode, but easier mode where turning up the gain and turning up the delay and the reverb while you're practicing can make you feel like you're doing better than you actually are. And then you get into a scenario where you're recording and the gain is lower and uh, you get to hear what you really sound like and uh, then you want to kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. If people out here are listening and uh, and this is you, turn the fucking effects down. Turn the game down. <laughs> right on. In a way, yes, but I don't know if you guys agree with me, but I'd also say that having the gain high also presents a different set of challenges. Yes, but what I'll say is when you're trying to get real tight yep. and you're working on like actual technique, of course, you should be able to hear yourself. But then learning how to play your songs in the context that you're actually going to be playing them in, then I think you should practice them with the gain the way it's going to be because the way that you interact with that gain is part of how you play the songs. Is that what you mean, kind of? Yes, exactly. Wow. So we're <laughs> nothing to argue about? No, 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 we're not arguing at all. Fuck. <laughs> Speaking of which, Bar, I do have a question actually, because obviously I'm I'm a lifelong Textures fan. In fact, I saw Textures uh, for the first time in 2004 on the Cult of Luna Salvation Tour. Hmm. And I swear that you don't use a noise gate in front of your amp. Yes, I don't. <laughs> you use it in the loop. Well, in the first... Many years we've played with a real amp. The last few years we've played with a Kemper. And, and with a Kemper I have, well, there's a built-in uh, noise gate, of course. But I've always used the noise gate just a tiny, tiny bit. Like, just for the hiss of the amp. Yeah, it's almost not on, you know? 
And also with the PV, I had this PV6505 with a G major in the loop. And that noise gate also, yeah, it was hardly on just for the hiss of the, of the amp. So the rest was especially uh, really tight muting with the palm of your hand and your fingers. That's what I taught myself to do as much as possible. <laughs> like also, yeah, just playing without noise gate because it makes the, the attack of your guitar most natural, I think. So you didn't use a noise gate when you recorded the records either? No, no. Wow, um, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> no, especially then we don't use a noise gate. And for, just for the hard breaks that should be really extreme, we just cut the silences by hand, you know, in post-production and not with a noise gate because noise gate can mess up takes throughout the song. You never know uh, when, it's, uh, when it cuts your signal. So we just record without noise gate and the amp as loud as possible. <laughs> I definitely think that... Um you know, from a recording perspective, I would prefer that a guitar player didn't use a gate and that we could manually cut the silence when needed because then we don't have to deal with some pedal deciding for us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a style, you know, it's a matter of uh, taste, I guess. Well, with textures, we have like some parts with open chords and sort of natural high gain sound, not even that high gain, but I always want chords to be uh, all the strings and the notes to be really heard, you know, to be really clear. And if you let a chord, an open chord ring for long, then the noise gate might kick in. And yeah, that's not what you want. <laughs> no. <laughs> so then you would have to switch noise gate on and off for certain parts or something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. When I want to have a really long open chord, I want to be able to just let it ring for like long. <laughs> Do you use a gate, Brown? Yeah. <laughs> I thought so. I don't use it like hard or anything, but well, actually the first album, I didn't use a noise gate on the front end. Mainly is more of a test for me, but it definitely did what Bart said. It just allowed more harmonic, I guess it, it just sounded sweeter because there was less stuff in the chain messing with the signal. Yeah, it does eat from your signal, right? Uh, if you put a noise gate like halfway or really strong. I mean, like nowadays, noise gates are a lot better than they were probably back in the early 2000s. I mean, what did you have in the early 2000s? There was like two choices. Decimator or boss? Exactly. Yeah, the ISP decimator, which wasn't even in pedal form. You could only buy the rack version um, from what I remember. And then obviously the boss NS2. You know, I still quite like the NS2, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I just can't imagine playing through a, a 5150, 6505 live that loud without a noise gate in front. It sounds like a stressful time to me. <laughs> For what? <laughs> For feedback or? Yeah, not even necessarily feedback, you know, just the micro movements of the hands that happen when you're, you know, you're trying to headbang or if you've got long hair, your hair's hitting the strings on your guitar. And all those little noises that would be probably present for me. Like, it's mm -hmm. really impressive to play live without a noise gate. It's not very often you hear of metal bands playing without a noise gate in front of the amp. So that means that you're, you must be great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really great at playing without noise gate and the rest of my playing sucks. <laughs> 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 Playing an amp like that without a noise gate makes me think of, uh, you know, those uh, 
those bull rides that they have certain bars where <laughs> you get on the mechanical bull, <laughs> you're trying to hang on, but you're going to get thrown off. That, oh. That's what, uh, that's what, um, that's what playing live with a 5150 or something without a noise gate makes me think of like, you're dealing with this fucking beast that's stronger <laughs> than you. Well, I think the main thing that, that makes it possible for us, for me, uh, to do that is that we didn't have that much gain on a live setting. Like the gain of my 51, my 6505 was like halfway. That's still a lot of gain. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot of gain in, in those amps, but still, yeah, it's possible to uh, to keep it silent. I don't know. I'm, I'm used to it, I guess. That's really impressive. I just got to say. Uh, and we, we practice it, of course, but I... Every professional band does that. I think you practice how to headbang, how to go crazy in rehearsal, like weekly or two weekly practice uh, session of a few hours long, only headbanging and going crazy. Also in the rehearsal room, we did that a lot, uh, not just for a show or something, but just practicing the songs, getting the structure in your mind, you know, but also practicing how to headbang and, and which parts you go really crazy, which parts you can ease down. And so you know which parts you can really go crazy and I'll have to watch your hand. Then if you practice it that much, you know uh, in which part you go crazy and, and in which parts you have to watch out for extra noise of your hands or your hairs against the strings. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's, that's good to do. And, that's what I'm trying to teach my students as well at the Metal Factory. Uh, like, okay, you got your songs going now. You got three more weeks for the showcase, you know, for the concert. What are you going to do? Practice by playing or are you going to practice how you're going to be on stage? You know, this is, a, this is a metal band that you created now in eight weeks. How are you going to deliver that? Are you going to stand still? Are you going to headbang? Are you going to walk around? You can brainstorm about that and practice it, how you're going to do it and practice headbanging while doing that and that riff. That's not an easy riff. Just practice it. I think it's good to practice that. Uh, if you're a touring band, of course, that goes naturally, I think. You just practice it by playing it live. But if you're not playing that much live shows, it's good to practice it uh, in your rehearsal space, I think. And that's what we did because with Textures, we never played more than 100 shows per year or something. We always had a sort of limit. We only uh, looked at like the, the, the better shows for ourselves. Yeah, well, I think people aren't taking into consideration how difficult it is to play stuff standing up headbanging, moving around with a bunch of shit moving around you. Yeah. It's a whole different story than just sitting there in your room yeah. in a comfortable chair <laughs> in the ideal, at the ideal temperature with a, <laughs> yeah. with a nice drink. <laughs> that yeah. brings back and, memories and of headphones. the, yeah, the temperature thing brings me back to uh, the Worcester Palladium, the main stage in the middle of winter. How, oh God. You know, you, you, <laughs> you've played, you've played there, haven't you, AL? Yes. 
Yeah, and Bart, did you play the Worcester Palladium on the periphery tour? Was that upstairs or downstairs? Downstairs, the one with where the double doors are right by the stage. I don't think so. The big stage. Yeah. Well, basically, it's just the moment those doors get opened, it can be the middle of summer and it's automatically freezing. Your guitar's going out of tune. <laughs> and yeah, that's what I just, just temperature. Yeah, I mean, even stuff like that, when your fingers aren't working, you know, it's just, yeah, it's a whole new challenge as well, isn't it? Yeah, I had a band that, uh, this was before we were signed. We wanted to get really good at playing live. We didn't have enough opportunities. So what I did was, and we had a, this rehearsal space that was a concrete room. I got a bunch of strobe lights and space heaters and we would turn the space heaters all the way up, <laughs> like all the way up. We'd get three of them. And then we would turn off all the lights and just turn on these strobes and uh, go crazy. You have to play like you're on stage, but you can't see shit. It's hot as fuck, like <laughs> hot as fuck. And you're going to get an epileptic seizure. And then we would record those, man. After the first few times, listening back was so depressing. But we got better and better at that. Nothing that we ever encountered on stage was more difficult than the rehearsal room in that in that scenario, which uh, which definitely helped. I think uh, the idea of making your rehearsal room more difficult or as difficult as you can compared to stage is a good thing. There's some things you won't be able to recreate, but make it hard on yourself. For sure. Yeah, that's a nice story. That's a good one. <laughs> also, making it that hot, that's crazy. Yeah, but you've played those shows, right? Where it's like so hot, you just want to fucking melt or die into the stage. Yeah, the whole neck of the guitar is slippery. You yeah. don't get no grip. <laughs> yeah. can imagine that yeah. you encountered some of those in the States. Yes. Yeah. Florida, always so hot. <laughs> the worst one I ever encountered was in Spain, actually. Interesting. Okay. In a basement of this 500-year-old building where it was all made out of stone and the it was only nine feet tall or three meters and was a narrow room with a capacity of 150, but there were 300 people in there and it was, there's no back door, so you load in through the front <laughs> and it was just like a cloud, just like a cloud of, of just a cloud of human and hot. And it was dead of summer. And I think that might've been the hottest experience I've ever had on stage. It was hotter than Ozfest in Dallas in August or something. But, um, but it wasn't hotter than the space heaters. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't hotter than the space heaters. So I was fine. Everybody else in that band was a, was dying. I was fine. So that that's that's where my philosophy works. Make it as hard as you possibly can in the rehearsal room. So also that you can practice the heat of a show. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny if you actually said everything that we do in a metal band to someone that didn't understand touring, it does kind of sound like torture, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you're toughening yourself up. Torture. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine the Slipknot uh, guys with the masks. And uh, in the beginning Jeez, days, man. years of, of their career, they had like the big suits, right? Yeah. Like overalls and every show, like multi how many shows did they do per year? A couple of hundreds. 
almost daily, every show <laughs> in those overalls and masks and our helmets in the beginning. That's sick, man. I can imagine that most of them were commando on the summer shows. Yeah. <laughs> I heard also they sometimes had to puke inside their mask or something like because it's so hot. But yeah, they, they had to continue. Yeah, absolutely. Training. <laughs> I mean, that first OzFest they did, I know what OzFest temperatures are like. I can't imagine doing that in their outfits. And they moved. They were definitely sweating. <laughs> yeah. It's not some kind of specially designed suit with <clears throat> ventilators inside. No, I don't think so. Maybe now. <laughs> I think yeah. it really does pay off to anticipate what you're going to encounter. And, you know, if you're talking about people you teach where they're, they've got eight weeks for the showcase, you know, they're not going to encounter one of these extreme situations, but still they have to stand up and play it in front of people. They should do their best to look cool while they're doing it. And uh, that takes, you still, still have to prepare for that. Yes. And if you play extreme metal, the riffs are like quite a workout already. And I've seen a lot of guys like, okay, well, this is a tough band. We got uh, three songs. We can uh, do this live. Okay, you're going to practice headbanging? Nah, we'll just do it on stage. We'll be fine. We can play it already <laughs> very, no, very well. So we'll be fine. And then you see them perform halfway to the second song. They're out of breath and like, oh, oh this is harder than I thought. Yeah, and then, then it's too late. <laughs> and then they can't move their neck that night. Yeah, and then they don't make the XM. I always call it uh, elevator cables after the first day of headbanging. Mm. How long would it take for your neck to uh, start to feel normal? Um, well, after not doing a show for a while? Yeah. Um, yeah, one or two days. I really have to rehabilitate my neck. Yeah. But I always tend to warm up a lot. Uh, just stretching my neck before a show and after a show helps a lot. You know, one thing that I started to learn when I started touring was started talking to bands that were older, you know, the, the older bands. And I noticed every one of them had back and neck, elbow, knee problems <laughs> from, uh, <laughs> from doing this. And they all said, man, yeah, uh, when I was 25, I didn't, you know, I didn't think that windmilling was going to fuck me up or, you know, <laughs> but they, all of them, every, every single band that, that, hey, listeners, every single band you like that has members above the age of 32, <laughs> they've all got knee and back and elbow uh, and neck problems. Mm. That's just, that's, that's just part of the deal. Well, luckily... Uh I don't have anything now, but... No, you, you know, with some exception. I, I think that in the 2000s, there wasn't much education about proper stretching or yoga or or the fact that you could hurt yourself with this kind of stuff. I think there is now. So I think that there's going to be more bands that are a little bit more health conscious about this stuff. But I just think it's important to say that this stuff does take a physical toll. So you should do um, what stuff like, what people like Bart do, which is stretch and take that seriously. Yeah. Even a few minutes of stretching uh, might already help. 
for the long term, yeah. Maybe we should all do like stunt courses, learning how to move. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> those guys seem to just do crazy things and then, you know, and, and girls obviously, but I can imagine that some of them get hurt, but I mean, it's probably significantly less than if they didn't have the training on understanding how to like fall. Yeah. They're also super athletes. There's also that. Yeah, true. Well, I also learned the hard way with... Uh with windmilling in, in particular, <laughs> uh, before textures, I had a death metal band called Brutus. And the concept of that was just blast beats, no backbeats. So there was never a normal rhythm, only blast beats <laughs> in all kinds of variations and breaks. So breaks and da 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 just blast beats. And the other concept was uh, all the three guitarists like two guitars and bass were all singing so and if you didn't sing if, you, if you're not at your mic you had to windmill that was the <laughs> concept <laughs> so and then you had to windmill and oh, you have to sing again oh okay so that's where i learned to windmill but uh that was super tiring and after a few years i was like hmm, do I want to do this another 10 years or longer? And that was not really the case. It was a fun project, but uh, yeah, it's impossible to do that physically. It's that extreme death metal. Yeah. Well, what do you do now to warm up? Uh, my neck, you mean? Or just... Anything. Just warm up your neck, your body, your hands. Just... Uh, like, say you have a tour next week. What are you doing? Yeah, headbang every day a bit, like... After the shower every day, I just have bang to dry my hair. And that already helps with getting my neck in shape. As stupid as it sounds, but uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, while practicing the songs, do a bit of headbanging, but not too rough. Just uh, slowly uh, getting my neck in shape, but not really special exercises or something. Just... Uh, being aware of my neck and being aware that I have to use it daily to get uh, to get it a bit strong again. Yeah, I find that the physical toll that this stuff takes is pretty extreme if you don't do that kind of stuff. Now, and that's not to mention just the regular injuries that happen from playing too much guitar, like carpal tunnel and tendonitis and yeah. shoulder stuff. You have to watch out for that stuff too. It's very important. Yeah. Sure. Do you deal with that a lot with your students? Well, I haven't seen that much injuries, luckily. But yeah, I make them aware of it for sure. So always have like a super simple uh, spider exercise, especially for the guys who don't play that long yet. Just make it simple, like one, two, three, four, fret one, two, three, four. Play that for a while. And that already helps, especially if you start to play guitar, I think. And of course, a lot of young guys think that's super boring. Uh, but I do think it's still a good exercise to get your fingers going, get some flexibility going, control per finger, you know. And yeah, that uh, next to just normal stretching of the fingers, just pulling them back, is always good to do before you play especially if you want to play some more brutal stuff or heavy heavier metal things brown do you take do you take any of that into consideration when you play yeah 
So I'm not going to lie, before a show, I'm quite lazy. Mainly because, you know, you know what it's like when you're on tour. Like the most important thing after you've set up on stage is getting some food. <laughs> True. Yeah. So like normally then it, by the time you've eaten and got settled back into the gig, it's normally time to go on stage. So generally what we tend to do is we tend to pick the songs that are the most easy to play to begin with so that it kind of gives us a little bit of a barrier to get into the more extreme stuff as the set goes on. Just as, like, so for example, we'll, we'll generally most of the time start with eight-string stuff, which is generally, apart from a few songs, a little bit more simple than maybe some of the seven-string stuff. But I'll stand there with my guitar for a good five to ten minutes before I go on stage just practicing the actual motions of what's going to happen. And as Bart said, you know, if you've been playing for a long time, you can get away with just warming up for 10 minutes in the environment you're going to be playing in. Obviously, 20, 30 minutes is obviously going to be better, but it depends what the situation is, whether it's on tour or whether it's I'm going to record a song. It's totally dependent on mostly how much time I have and also what the end result is. Yeah, that makes sense. We've had times uh, with textures that we, uh, for example, on a, on a festival, your backstage is behind the big stage and you have to warm up while another band is playing, for example. So in the, there's a lot of noise in the little room behind the, the backstage, you know, wherever that is. So there you cannot really play or warm up where while you hear yourself but what we did a lot if we have time to warm up but didn't have a really nice sound we uh we sit together in a little room and we just play the songs or some parts of songs together with the guitars not plugged in of course and uh, the drums just uh playing with the sticks on a, on a on a couch or something And we just play the songs like this and, and sing along with it, you know, sing the riffs and the drummer playing the rhythms with feet and hands, just this sound, you know, and the singer singing along just like that. So everybody is also, yeah, it's a sort of a, a group spirit also. It, it sounds ridiculous because you just hear, uh, <laughs> you just hear this from the... You don't really hear a sound or the song, but you hear also, uh, sometimes we did like da, 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 just singing like that while playing guitar. So together it sounded like the song and that way you get create a sort of group spirit. Like, okay, we have this first song of our set. Everybody's really into it. Um, and we are all synced, you know? And that way is a nice, nice way to warm up yourself as a group, I think. It was pretty cool that when we had time for that, we did that. We've actually done that a few times as well, especially when it came to playing new songs live. You know, when you go to play a new song on stage and you're kind of panicked that you think, oh, I'm not going to be able to play this today or it's the first time. Um, we would do that as well. We used to call it a circle jaff. <laughs> Because it would just be ridiculous, you know, you just, you can't hear anything, but you're warming up and just internalizing what's about to happen. Yeah. And yeah. Circle jam. Circle jaff. Oh, circle jaff. <laughs> <laughs> Circle jaff. 
circle riffing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it's good to get synchronized with each other and uh, be sure that everybody knows his parts, especially for new songs in, indeed. And also, yeah, just as you say, though, warming up, it can do a lot just even if you're playing the song slightly slower, just getting into the mood of it and you're in the environment, roughly the, the temperature, what it's going to be at, the right environment, yeah. it's putting you in a good place. So I have a question about the eight-week band courses that you guys do. Mm-hmm. You said that you like to help them or have them create a band with a style, you know, not just a theory or exercises. How do you get that in eight weeks with people that are essentially strangers? Yeah, that's uh, that's the challenge of those. Uh, it sounds like it. Yeah. And they have this for uh, four times per year. So like divided in eight weeks each. And each eight weeks, they are put in groups totally new to each other. That's right. Uh, sometimes some members are the same, but we try to switch them around. So everybody plays with a new group each eight weeks. Yeah. And then you have to have a, a planning, you know, um, have an overview of what you want to do. Sometimes a group gets together and they might know each other a bit or they know, oh, this guy is a bit uh, a death metal guy. Oh, this guy is a bit a new metal guy. Uh, want to create something in between. You know, sometimes it goes naturally. If you put a group together and they just plug in their guitar and the drummer starts a beat and then oh, some riffs come out and they say, hey, this is a bit uh, a power metal uh, vibe. Okay, let's start something power metal. Sometimes there's a group and yeah, it doesn't work. And then still you have to fix it, you know. There has to be some kind of style and some kind of product in eight weeks. So you have to sit together, okay, what does everybody like? Oh, I like uh, funk. Oh, I like uh, groove metal. Oh, I like only death metal. Uh, You know, and then there's nothing that overlaps. And those are the the difficult ones, but they can be cool and, and challenging as well because everybody steps outside of their comfort zone. And that's, of course, that's the thing where you learn the most. So you're going to yeah, search for some overlap or just decide like, okay, there's no overlap. Let's just go for groove metal. Do your thing. Do your research. What does everybody know about groove metal? Uh, listen to Pantera. Listen to that. Listen to that. Let me know next week if you do your research. Uh, what other bands do you, do you know? And show us a list of the style which you roughly want to accomplish within eight weeks and then the second week we sit together and then if they did their research you can really build some style together and sometimes they still don't do their research and they just try something like i think this is groove metal but uh, that doesn't sound like groove metal i really have to coach them like okay guys Play a Spotify song of Pantera. What's in there? What does this groove metal style define? Groove metal. Like what kind of riffs? What kind of rhythms? What kind of lyrics? What kind of voice? You know, uh, all these items, elements of music. How do you describe it? Write it down and try to incorporate that into your songs. And yeah. Most of the time, uh, they really make it work, and that's that's really cool to see. It's always different, and sometimes it's even that bad that yeah, some some people don't like each other, or like, oh, I don't like this drummer, uh, he's an <laughs> asshole. 
uh, yeah, still you have to work with him for eight weeks and uh, play together on a, on a show, you know. So sometimes we're just like the almost psychiatrist, like trying to fix the personal issues. But that's also realistic, I think, because in, in the real world, in the wherever you end up after the, this uh, study, that happens as well. You, you might be in a band where you don't like one person that much. Still, you have to roll on with him. <laughs> <laughs> or do a project, you know, or a session job where, where some guy is an asshole. Yeah, that still happens. So you have to be able to put yourself in a professional attitude and work with it. How different is that than if you were going to start a band yourself in real life nowadays? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing this a bit myself now as well because I don't have a band anymore. <laughs> so I'm a bit in the, in sort of that situation. But yeah, I've, I've, I've got far more experience, of course. For example, if I want to start something now, I'm uh, working on my solo album. I'm also thinking about that. Like, okay, I've got my style. I... I've did a lot of stuff with textures. I've got that kind of style. Maybe I want to mix it with something new, something to challenge myself. So I'm searching for different styles to combine with that textures background that I have. I don't want it to be a textures copy, of course. I've, I've done that and that's what it is. I don't want to continue that. It's time for something new. So yeah, I'm, I'm also in this stage doing research consciously but also unconsciously you just listen to music daily and sometimes you find new music maybe not even metal music but that inspires you to do something new with your own style where do you see it going yeah i'm, I'm working on a solo album now i've got some musicians in mind to do this would be cool to uh, to bring that to a stage as well like a live uh, band but for now i just want to write a full album by myself because I've always worked together with a group of six people with textures. That's cool to do really something on my own now and deliver something as a full album and then see if, if it's yeah that cool that I can also uh, bring that to a stage. Do you think that starting a band in the current climate, I mean, obviously you've got an advantage because of your experience and your connections, say that you didn't have all that, do you consider this climate harder than when Textures started or easier? As I see it now, there are more and more bands, more and more styles also to begin a band in. But yeah, for sure, nowadays climate is like, it's not easy to grow as a band, I think. You can create something that might be pretty cool, but uh, yeah, I see a lot of, Bands that have like, or you bring out a single and uh, people like it for short and then it's forgotten again. And that's too bad to see. I don't know. It's like a fast food uh, society or something, but also <laughs> with music. It's just uh, one bite. Oh, it's really great. Okay. Something new, please. And you don't, it seems like the new generation is not, it doesn't stick to a band anymore they want just tiny bites uh and after that they want a new band ah let's find something new instead of some some kind of deepening within one band which you can stick to and really yeah dive into their music you know 
I'm 40 years old now. I feel like in 80s or 90s, there are more of that kind of bands that really stick with you than after the year 2000, somehow. Maybe it's the age now of me, uh, but after the year 2000, I cannot really name a new band that's like, okay, that's, that sticks with me like a Metallica a long term, you know, or Pink Floyd, which have really brought a deepening uh, meaning of music or something. I miss that, I must say. <laughs> and that makes it difficult to start something new because, yeah, somehow you want to reach a bigger audience, but somehow you want to keep, do keep doing your experimental stuff. Yeah, it's kind of either or in some ways. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I felt that way about music for a long time. And I think what it was is the amount of time between albums with bands. Like, you know, it wasn't too uncommon to wait five, six, seven years for another album to come out by an <laughs> artist. Even 10, like Tool is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so happened to be wearing the hoodie right now. But like, you know, it's expected by signed bands nowadays that the a new album is released every 18 months. Now, 18 months to do a full album cycle is considering that it's going to take the best part of six months to 12 months minimum to write an album and record it and release it is not a long period of time at all. It's really, it's just hashing out music for the sake of hashing out music. Like if you write 10 good songs, then you should be able to write on those 10 good songs for five years. I mean, you should be able to, but as you say, like with Spotify, Apple Music and all these streaming services, it makes access to music too easy and people just want new stuff now because they've listened to your song 10,000 times already because they haven't had to rewind the tape. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it, AL. I think it's very, very complicated. If you look at the overall money going into the music industry, it's higher than it's been in a long time. People are consuming music more than they have in a long time. Streaming has finally turned the corner. The availability of technology that allows you to make music is, it's never been more available. It's never been more possible to get your stuff up there. And so the complaints that people used to have, which were, there's too many gatekeepers. It's like impossible to get a record deal. Like, this is this shit's impossible, which was true. Yeah, it's hard to get a record deal, but it's no longer impossible to get your stuff heard. But now the challenge is breaking through the noise. But I think that the challenge is the same. It's just morphed to adapt to this era. So before, the challenge was breaking through the noise so that you could get the attention of a gatekeeper. The gatekeeper would let you in. Now, the challenge is just breaking through the noise direct to the listener. But either way, no matter what time period you lived in, you had to break through the noise because there was either barely any ways to get your stuff out there and everybody fighting for those tiny amount of spots, or there's too many ways to get your shit out there. And so you're fighting for people's attention. And so I think that artists who understand it's all about getting the public's attention now will be the ones that survive. And then here and there, you're going to have artists that uh, do music really so good that that alone will carry them. 
But I definitely think that um, bands nowadays need to be thinking about what they need to do to get the public's attention because the public kind of is the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper is, does my stuff spread? It's almost like a filter. Like if your stuff is spreadable, that's the gatekeeper right there. Like So it's not even like a person who says yes or no now. It's more the public says yes or no by sharing your shit with their friends. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. But I think that the challenge itself isn't that different in terms of difficulty, in my opinion. No, I would agree. One one other challenge actually that brings that I would bring up is the fact that even up until the early 2000s, it was, you used to still see styles of music come from different demographics around the world. I'm talking like grunge, Seattle, um, country music, Nashville. Black metal, Norway. Black metal, Norway. Yeah, even that. Yeah. <laughs> but nowadays, the moment that you put your song on the internet and say it's a completely new style that um, not many people are doing, within a couple of weeks, someone halfway across the world is doing the same style in their own way, which is a reason why I think that people are constantly wanting to hop between finding the next new thing quicker than maybe they were throughout the, from the fifties onwards, even earlier. And styles just go, come and go really quickly. So, you know, that, what I was saying about that 18 months for a record, yeah, it is a very short space of time, but within an 18 month period, what is the new is completely changed. So the record that you've been working on might not even be relevant anymore. <laughs> yeah, but does it mean if you ha if you found a cool style of your own, does it mean you have to change it every few years? I don't think so. No, it doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean you have to change it. No, you don't have to do anything. No, no. I mean anything. It's art. But for creating a new band, uh, you would have to search something fresh. You mean? Yes. It depends on what your goals are. No matter what, I think that you should be writing music that's true to you because it's, I think that it's a horrible gamble to try to write music to please other people because you mathematically can't. You can't because the moment you try to please some people, you're going to be pissing other people off. So no matter what you do, I think that a new band should be focused on writing music that's true to their soul. But that said, they need to be looking at what their goals are. Is their goal to become a huge band is their goal to be like known in the prog scene is their goal to just do this for fun is what, like, what do they want? True. And then based on that music aside, you know, music completely aside, what do they want? What do they want? And then once they figure that out, that should determine what approach they take is the approach a singles approach is the approach a little bit more old school with albums. Like what does their audience listen to like do they need to tap into this thing of changing styles do they need to appeal to 20 year olds like 30 year olds 40 year olds 50 year olds like what do they want who are they going for those things matter once you know once they've established who they are musically because there's a few different approaches that they can take and they all work depending on yeah where you want to go who you are and what you're going for yeah yeah Yeah, with textures, for example, we've we've always known we that the music of textures is quite extreme. We've gotten pretty far, if you can say so, but we also knew that we we cannot grow like huge because it's it has like ambient parts, but also death metal parts. You know, we've been uh, 
we've played on a lot of pop festivals in uh, in the Netherlands, huge festivals, mainly because we have a singer that had a singer that could uh, sing clean uh, in a nice way. So it appeals to a lot of people, but still we're too extreme to really be on the radio, for example. And we've always known that and we never aimed to really go there you know and then you really have to change your music we we've always been on the experimental side of metal with some little steps towards uh, melodic rock so to say that was a bit our goal and if you want to really break through with this kind of music i think the only way is to do 300 shows per year and do less blast beats, uh, less death metal influences, then you might get bigger, so to say, like more known. But that was never our intention. So yeah, we kept uh, we kept the blast beats. <laughs> That's a choice you have to make. You can still be underground though in a big band. Yeah, yeah. You know, like because uh, I mean, I mean, I always bring up Meshuggah. I think it's just a really good example that you know they. I wouldn't say they're a particularly huge band. Yeah, it's not played on the radio. Nope. And, you know, what they play, what, two, maybe 3,000 cap rooms? That's pretty big. It's pretty big, but it's not enormous, is it? No. No, but it's still a great career. For sure. Yeah, but it only it only started happening in 2008. So I want to say for the first 20 years of their existence, they were just a very underground band. But they were still achieving what it was they wanted to achieve. Yeah, yeah. And being an extreme band they are, I think that even getting to that level of, you know, two to, playing two to 3,000 by doing their own sound is still quite impressive. True. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely doable to have a an entire career in the underground. But again, if that's what you are, cool. But chasing the thing that radio bands chase is not the right approach then, you know? Like putting out a bunch of singles and things like that, that's not that might not be the right approach if you're more of an underground band of, you know, musicians for musicians kind of band. Like it's the, that audience has a different way of consuming music and different criteria on which they judge bands as cool or not. But I definitely think that there, we know, we know plenty of bands that are maybe not underground in our scene, but definitely underground in the wider world. Like, Nobody has heard of them in the real world. I mean, Meshuga are like gods in our scene and people have not heard of them in the real world. Go walk into any office anywhere. And most people, I guarantee you, have no fucking clue who Meshuga is <laughs> or Cannibal Corpse. Actually, I disagree with both of those because of Ace Ventura and the end of Saw. But your point still stands. <laughs> Dude, they didn't, they didn't know who Ace Ventura was I mean, who Cannibal Corpse was even in the 90s when Ace Ventura had them in there. <laughs> the only people who knew were the metalheads. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, the music is still very, very underground, no matter what. It's very, very underground. But I definitely think that what's cool about it, though, is that if that is what you do, you're kind of in luck that the audience for underground music does appreciate more old school methods of releasing things like full albums. Whereas uh, if you're going for the younger crowd, good luck with uh, <laughs> good luck, good luck with full albums. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. If you want the older proggy crowd, 
that they still like full full lengths. So I, I do think it's important to know to know who your audience. Not, I mean, you can't predict your entire audience, but it's good to know to have some idea of who your audience is, right? And give it to them in a way they can consume it or will consume it. Yeah, but when you start a new band, I think it's good to not watch that at all. And once you have a style, then you yes. can mold it that way that you can, yeah, present it to certain group of people. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I, I think that I've noticed a lot of uh, people starting bands. They think about the business stuff before the music, which I think is a mistake. Yes, agree. Thinking about the business stuff is smart, but you can't have a business plan without a product. The product <laughs> being the music and the band itself. Like, how can you make plans for what you're going to do with it until you even know what it sounds like? Yeah, I've seen that too many times as well. Like, they already have a plan and already have a look and uh, the artwork and that kind of stuff without having a note of music. That's that's not the right approach, I think. I've always believed that if you make your music as good as possible as you humanly can, just for yourself or for for yourself mm-hmm. as a group, uh, then it can, can work for bringing it uh, or releasing it in, into the world, not the other way around. I agree. I definitely do think, though, that it is a good thing that musicians nowadays do think about the business side of things and they do think about the marketing. That's very important stuff. I definitely don't think that they should think about it before they think about the music, of course. But once the music is, you know, underway, once that's been determined, they need to take the other part of it just as seriously, in my opinion. It's just as important if they want it to get out into the world. Because of all the competition for people's attention, you do have to take the business side very seriously, I think. But priorities, <laughs> priorities, music, number one, always. You know what's funny is uh, we all know A&R people and managers, right? We've all known them for a long time. And uh, I've had quite a few on my other podcast. And, you know, we get questions submitted of like, how did I get my band signed? And the, the answer is always, they always say, well, you know, start with writing really good songs. And people don't want to hear that answer. Like, they don't want that answer. They want some sort of trick, like some sort of path to getting these people's attention. But they're being serious. That's really it. <laughs> yeah. Write some amazing fucking songs. They want a shortcut. Yeah, start there. Write some amazing songs. And... uh then then uh then worry about the next step if you're writing really really amazing songs the other stuff will just start to go into motion i've noticed yes definitely 100% yeah in the beginning of of textures we did a lot of this stuff ourselves but after a few years we got a manager and i noticed of myself that i focused less on the on that kind of stuff, you know, planning or social media or marketing and that kind of stuff. I was really being the musician back then, like, okay, I'm just going to write and write, do as much as possible on the music side. And I'm, I trust this manager that he's going to do his thing and teach us, us a bit about it, you know. That's when you have a manager. But I think still think it's good to dive in it yourself if you can as a band to know about it, all the aspects. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, of course, well, we had, luckily we had some pretty good managers, but I'm sure if we 
dove into it, then we might have gotten even further, you know? I don't know. But uh, sometimes you just want to go for the music and trust on something, someone you hire, of course. But yeah, you never know, especially in the beginning. That's kind of what a label is. They're part of the team that are trying to push you as far as physically possible. I mean, that's one thing about getting a record label deal. A record label won't offer you anything unless they think they can make money out of you. <laughs> yeah. That's the ultimate. It's like a bank. I definitely do believe that the more that a band knows about running their own shit, business-wise marketing, the better they can do. Just look at the periphery example. That's like, that's like to me, the gold standard of a band that uh, do both the music and the, uh, the business side of things. But also, let's be real. That's not everybody's personality. And you can't turn yourself into something you're not. So uh, not everybody is wired like an entrepreneur. Some people are just wired like an artist. One's not better than the other. This is just how people are as, you know, deep down to their characters and their personalities. There are some people who get turned on by entrepreneurial things and like that's their personality. That's what keeps them up at night. Other people, no. It's very hard to try to be something you're not, I think. And I think what's more important than taking, trying to take over the business side if you're not good at it, not interested in it, is to make sure that you at the very least partner with people who are really good at it, that you trust and you know, that you at least learn the minimum required to be able to make intelligent decisions. But, uh, but I, I don't think that uh, people should look at periphery and, and get mad at themselves for not being like that because that's a personality trait. These people were born that way. Same way that I was born being a fucking asshole. They were born. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those guys were born to be entrepreneurs, just like uh, Guthrie Govan was born with this ridiculous guitar talent. You know, some people just are a certain way, but becoming more educated can never hurt you. Yeah, I'm thinking about it right now. Like this, speaking of periphery. These guys, they, they mix the business side, also uh, social media, of course, they're really good at that. And also combining it with making videos of demoing stuff, you know, and uh, creating mm -hmm. uh, their own stuff, uh, their own gear, their own uh, plugins, that kind of stuff. That's, that's really a thing of the newer bands, I think. In 80s or 90s, you didn't have... A Dimebag Daryl making a demo of his uh, of his amp uh, in a separate video. You know, you just see Dimebag Daryl as a guitarist, live player, and you don't see any other videos of him at home or you know riffing out at home on a, some kind of amp or a pedal. Though you would see him in the full page ad of a magazine holding a guitar or an amp. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's like a photo. Yeah. You never see that's him like see. promoting on a video. That's that's really something of the, the past 10, 20 years, maybe, if yes. I can say so. That's interesting to see. And it's it's part of the new bands as well. And that's a cool thing as well, because it, it fits. You know, it's it's part of Peripheries music. Uh, the guys are riffing out cool riffs while promoting stuff. So it's also the whole community around it that they are creating. The whole vibe, the whole riffing, the whole melodies that you create for the music, they also use it in promoting stuff. That's a pretty cool uh, fact, I think. 
And not everybody can do that. That's what you say also. And that's not a bad thing. No. It doesn't mean they can't have a successful music career just because it's not them to do that. Yeah. I think there's a big difference as well. Like you're saying, you know, if you're not good at business, don't do it. And I wholeheartedly agree. But I think that everyone in a band owes it them to themselves to understand what the manager actually is doing. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying don't learn about it. I'm not saying get educated. I'm not saying know what's going on. I'm just saying that... I never said you weren't. If you only have 24 hours in a day, right? 16 of them awake. You spend three of them with your wife or your girlfriend. One of them, you know, taking shits and brushing your teeth and <laughs> all that stuff. Maybe you exercise, right? Then yeah. there's like two more hours that... Everybody spends fucking around on the internet or playing video games or whatever. So that leaves you with uh, maybe that you've got a day job. Who knows? Then you have the time of needing to get good at the instrument, whatever that is. And then you have what's left. So who are you? Are you the entrepreneur or are you the songwriter? Like, what are you going to focus on? You don't, you only have so much time in this world, in this life, to focus on the things you want to focus on. And so I'm not saying don't learn about the business, but I'm saying if that's not what you're really, really best at, if you're the guy who's much better at writing the music, then yeah, you should learn about the business, but you, you should probably partner with somebody that you really trust who's way better than you at it. 100%. True. 100%. That's what I did, yeah, like, uh, roughly the first half of my Texas career, I, I think. Because we had uh, Steph, the drummer of Textures, uh, he was, from the start, uh, already focusing on the business side. And I know him for long, so I trusted him back then. And I was back then like, okay, Steph does his thing there. He also writes the music, but I just wanted to write music and didn't want to spend any time on figuring out all these kind of things. And yeah, at least he was something, uh, someone that I can, could trust. Uh, but uh, yeah, you always have to have that kind of person, I think, that goes for it. And along the way, after a few years, I learned more and more about it. But I really had a time I didn't want to even know about it, like... Whatever, we just continue like we're going now. We had a good start with textures. Just continue, make as much and as good music as possible. And then we'll we'll see what happens, you know. And yeah, after a few years, I thought, okay, let's look at this social media thing some more. I didn't really uh, do a lot of social media in the start of textures. Uh, well, it was 2002. There was not a lot of social media back then. But yeah, that came way later because I wanted to focus on the music itself. But it sounds to me like having the ability to have a partner like that who was interested in the business side of things allowed you to be able to work on the music the amount that you did, which ultimately sounds like a winning combination. Yeah, but I can imagine if I did, if I... Uh, if I researched the business side really from the start, maybe we could have ended up uh, in a different place, you know? Maybe. 
But yeah, you never know. Maybe not though. Maybe not because there was maybe less music. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Maybe it wouldn't have focused on the music part so much. And uh, yeah, I'm not saying I wrote all the music, but uh, you know, I just wanted to have my focus for me personally, just for the music and uh, and my uh, my study back then it was taking all my time. It's interesting that you brought that up. That's why I try to not let myself regret things because there's no way to know what could have happened. Like we can, I feel like we can always tell ourselves if I had only done this, it would have turned out like this, but that's actually bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. We don't actually know. We don't actually know. Sure. Yeah. It's easy to say that kind of stuff because there's no way to prove it. Makes you feel better. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Things could have been so much bigger if I had just done this or they could have completely imploded and then you could have gotten hit by a bus. Like who the hell knows? Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's just no way to know because it didn't happen. No, but yeah, it's good to have uh, some guys in the band focused on the business side and some on uh, on the music side. I believe in that. And if you have a trustable manager then the whole band can focus on the music but yeah try to find a manager that you can really build on for years that's not easy no and i want to be real clear about something we're not encouraging anybody to just blindly trust right like even in a situation where say you're a musician that just wants to worry about the music let someone else deal with the business cool But it shouldn't be 100% like where you just blindly listen to whatever they say and just trust everything blindly. You should still be asking questions. You should still know what's going on. You should still be able to see the numbers. You should still be involved. Be involved the minimum amount needed to make sure that things are moving forward um, clearly, transparently, and uh, well, whatever that is. Sure. And just be like one quick meeting a week or whatever. But I'm definitely not encouraging musicians who don't want to be involved in the business side to just blindly trust whoever the fuck. Because that, that's just a recipe for disaster. True. Yeah. Always do your research. We know those stories. Uh, yeah, there's one in the news at the moment. I think I've spoken about it a few times. So I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> one in the news at the moment. Yeah, there's... Uh, Rather large bands. They had nearly 20 number one singles during the 90s. Ah, Yeah, yeah. You hear about this kind of stuff a lot. You know that stereotype of the dumb musician? Yeah, it's true. The dumb musician that uh, you can get them to agree to anything or you can, you know, just don't show them the numbers. You can do, you know, that whole uh, super predatory music business approach. It's very real. I'm just I'm just saying it for people listening who are wanting to go into the music industry. Music industry contracts come from an era where musicians were seen more like property than as people. And uh, these contracts were set up in a way to extract maximum value out of these assets, basically. Over time, they got better. The record deals have gotten better and the relationship between the business and musicians have gotten a lot better. It's come a real long way. However, it does come from that place. And there's still a lot of weird shit in record deals that come from an older era. And then there's still some people who, even if they 
don't actively say, I think all musicians are fucking idiots. They still have a little bit of that floating around in there. Musicians should be aware that that does exist out there. And not everybody's like that. Not everybody's out to screw you or anything like that. But the music industry is set up in a way, like at its core, it's set up in a way that's not in your favor. So like the structure of it is not in your favor. And so that's why it's good to just understand what's going on. Because in the default template form, it's set up from the uh, assumption that musicians are not going to look into things and don't know what's going on and just want to be left alone to make their music. That's cool if you're getting, if you're making $10 million a year or something, whatever, but we know, we know all the stories. So just be aware of who you're doing business with and what's going on. Yeah. And do what is possible for your band. You know, it's good to set a goal, for example, uh, an amount of shows per year together because if you get a manager we've had that in the past if you get a manager that has real big network and has really cool ideas he might call you like several times per week hey guys i have a show uh, there and there hey guys i have a tour there and there hey guys uh, you can uh, go on this tour if you want uh, let me know and some bands might say okay to everything And then, yeah, you play yourself to death, maybe not for even a good amount of money per show. While you also can decide like, okay, we're not going to take everything that this manager offers. We're going to filter everything and make him offer uh, a bit higher, you know, a higher amount of money per show, for example. And then you don't have to say yes to anything, every idea or a tour that he comes up with. And then it's more easy to do in the long term. I think that's how many bands might play themselves to death, like 300 shows per year in some small venues because they have an overactive uh, manager who just fixes anything all the time. But it doesn't really bring you long-term revenue. Yeah. Or a booking agent who has 30 bands, all of the same size. And it's just about getting them on tour constantly. And this agent doesn't give a fuck how dangerous the drives are, how unrealistic the drives are, anything like that. He's just got a number of bands. They each make X amount from the deposit every night. It's not about making the bands bigger. It's about getting that percentage from X number of bands every single night. That's it. So it's not just managers. It's also booking agents. You just need to be careful who you're working with and know what their motivations are. Know what their motivations are. All that said, while taking all this into consideration, it's good to know where you're at in your career too. Because nothing can kill a career faster than a band thinking that they're worth more than they're actually worth and then not taking opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, because you know that another band will just take the opportunity away from you. Yes. I guess that's part of the problem, isn't it? You know, you get offered a support slot. The amount of money that you've been offered is absolute dog shit. But in your, you need to understand when it's a good opportunity and when, and when not to do it because you'll be in financial turmoil. It's kind of like a fine line that you're like kind of walking on a tightrope in a weird way. Because, you know, on one side, yeah doing that tour with that big band makes total sense because their crowd is a perfect fit for your band. But you know that you're going to, at the end of the tour, lose five to $10,000 from doing it. So it's a case of, that's why it's so important to understand business and have a manager that you trust 
because that kind of financial hit can sink a lot of bands. Yeah. I, I remember a manager I had once that we did not get along with advised us to take this one tour, a smaller tour where we were making more money, but the tour was way longer and way shittier, but we were making more money over one of these Sumerian tours in like 2008 or nine, like when those Sumerian tours were doing real, real well, the Sumerian tour was less money, but the lineup was fucking amazing. It was going to be packed every single night. The management strongly pushed us to take the smaller tour for more money. And so that's an interesting one because yeah, you'll make more money. But it probably would have made the money on the merch sales. Yeah, exactly. So you need to determine, in my opinion, if your team is working for their own best interests or your own best interests, or if your best interests are their best interests, that's what you really want is that your best interests are their best interests. But if, uh, if there's a division there where they're working for their own best interests and they're not yours, you shouldn't be working with those people, in my opinion. Agreed. So how do you find a good manager? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I don't know how uh, we've had a few managers with textures, but uh, we did some research and we came across a few guys, but uh, that's still not easy, I would say, especially as a, as a beginning band. You have to have a network. And we didn't have that the first few years of textures. And so after doing a few shows and after having a label, then you get sort of network, which can advise you into, okay, uh, I know this and this guy. Because just finding someone in the neighborhood or anywhere, we didn't know that back then. At what point do you think that a band is ready? I think it's really good to do everything yourself for a while, as we did. Because then you learn the hard way and you, you learn the things to avoid. So, yeah, after a few years of doing shows... Roughly, I think. I'd agree with that, actually. I'd say that you need to, I guess it's to find out who's interested as well at the same time. Like if your name keeps popping up on different shows, on different tours, your album's been released through X label, then managers will find you. Because uh, if someone feels like they can make money off you, they'll flock in. Yeah. Well, we've done a, a lot of years without manager, but with a booker, you know, a booker does less things than a manager, but at least he fixes shows. And that's what you need in the first years. I'd actually say that's more important than a manager um, for a band starting out, to be honest. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually what we did. So um, when Monuments began, we released a song called Admit Defeat and actually had an email the same day from a booking agent, which was very lucky because it was quite a large booking agent. Um, and it's kind of what started us off on a good foot. So, you know, we did our first tour as Monuments in June 2010 through previous connections through my old band. And it was only a six-date tour with While She Sleeps opening, who obviously now are an astronomically large band and we actually played above them. And then... From that, doing those six shows, then we got offered tours from this booking agent, which then less than a year later got us on tour with Tesseract and Periphery. So yeah, I'd actually say the booking agent is probably the first thing that's required after you've managed to get your live set together. You can play tight together. 
And then a manager can then follow on when, basically when the band's too busy, I think. True, um, yeah. I think once the band gets busy, you need a manager to sort of like organize all of the logistics and all of that stuff, which the band shouldn't be doing anyway, because getting five people to to do that when everyone's kind of pulling in different directions is quite difficult sometimes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Just out of curiosity, do you practice guitar anymore? Uh, it's a funny question, I know. Some people say that they don't really practice anymore. Once they've been playing for, you know, ever, they say more things like, I I play guitar when I'm writing. That's my practice. Yeah, well, past few years after Textures, I'm practicing more again because I have time now. So I really want to improve my skills still. But during Textures, I didn't practice at all, actually. If I look back now, because we did, uh, yeah, we almost played every weekend of the year, like roughly every weekend every two weeks at least a show so then you have like full show with rehearsal a week before that or two rehearsals you know before every show so you're every week you're playing uh not just for short but really playing for a few hours uh, at a time so then i i didn't practice now I feel like practicing more because I want to improve myself. Uh, also because I'm working on my own music, new music, and I want to, yeah, improve how I play and find new things for myself, experiment uh, with new techniques and uh, uh, stay in shape also. I, I have time for that because I'm not, I don't have a band now, so I have to stay in shape. I'm uh, actually playing... Uh, Quite a lot of the texture songs now, just for fun. And uh, on my, uh, I'm doing live streams weekly. I'm just playing texture songs for fun to stay in shape. You know, it's a fun way of staying in shape, and it's also exercise, of course. How many hours a day do you find yourself practicing just to get better or stay in shape? Well, not daily. The teaching days where I do band coaching, for example, at Metal Factory, I don't play an instrument but i'm busy for uh for full day and i come home and don't feel like doing anything so those are two days of the week i don't play and the rest of the week i'm uh teaching and i would say three four days per week i i practice for at least one hour two hours and also i'm writing it's not really practicing but yeah you're working on your skills and new techniques so that's a bit of practicing yeah yeah, totally. Um, do you have your practice time regimented? Not really. Over the years, I've created some uh, warm-up exercises for my students. I still do those every now and then with like a backing track with, uh, for example, some synth pads in modes and just go through those for like 20 minutes long without stopping. That's as a workout for myself. So few times per week I do that that's nice to 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 stay in shape and also not too difficult you don't have to really come up with something just grab an exercise as a workout and do that but it would be better I think if you really practice for one hour non-stop and in different techniques that you can do 
but I'm, I never do that. I'm too, uh, too free or something in that. <laughs> Did you used to do that? Yeah, more uh, when I started playing guitar, I really uh, practiced with metronome mm-hmm. for long, just scales and uh, exercises. Yeah, so you put in your time doing that kind of practice. Yeah. I feel like everyone needs to do that kind of stuff at some point in the beginning. They need to put in their time of just normal practice, scales, metronome, yes, the boring shit. Just do it. Get it over with. Put in the few years. Then you'll get to a point where you don't need to do that stuff anymore. Yeah. And if you continue doing it after so many years, then you're back at that level uh, sooner. Yes, absolutely. Like learning how to ride a a bike again. Yeah. A bit of practice and then you're back again. (laughs) What's the most challenging thing for you now? What's giving you the most problems? Skills-wise? Yeah, skills-wise. Like what... What's fucking you up these days? Right now, like two, three years after textures, I notice that my my down picking gets uh, I get less uh, fit in down picking because I was always on top of that because of the live shows, and now it's like okay, I'll play along with that song. Let's uh, play it, and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have to repeat that a few times to get back to that speed. So, yeah, that's that's just a matter of repetition, I guess. But, yeah, I noticed that right now after 17 years of doing live shows and now all of a sudden three years not doing live shows, that's like uh, high energy, high speed down picking that uh, gets less easy if I don't really work on it every day. Down picking is one of those things, man. It just goes. What, goes away, you mean? Yeah, it just goes away. If you don't uh, work it. If you don't work on it actively, that shit goes away. Yeah. Except maybe for brown. No, it goes away <laughs> for me too. Yeah. Yeah, it does? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, one example, I remember in 2011, just got back from the periphery tour when I filled in for them and uh, ended up having to go and stay at my sister's house because it was uh, I was on tour for such a long time. Had to get rid of everything. So ended up going to my sister's house, leaving all of my gear with Mike. And he couldn't send the guitar, a guitar, one of my guitars to me for about six weeks. So I didn't play any guitar, not one bit of guitar for six weeks. And when I got it, I thought I'd forgotten how to play guitar because it was that bad. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I had to relearn all the songs again, completely, because I just didn't have the stamina or the endurance to really go through them. How long did it take? couple of weeks actually that time yeah yeah that's so bad but still it does go away it, it's not that it's so bad it's the mental side of it because you know you can do it because you've done it do you know what i mean and then getting past that barrier again is the difficult point you really have to yeah it's like breaking your momentum and going backwards yeah like it, that's one of the reasons why i always respected ingve so much after his injury the amount of mental strength that would be required to do what he did is just crazy. Yeah. Didn't he shatter his hand completely? Yeah. He he lost all the nerves to his hand from what I understand and had to completely learn how to play the guitar again. Wow. And there was also a, a jazz musician that had a stroke that had to relearn how to play. He completely forgot how to play it. Then my case uh, of uh, losing my downstroke ability in a few years feels really light. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I, yeah, I know, I, yeah. I'm I'm back 
at it now, like after a few months of playing texture songs just for fun every week, I'm already back, you know, but uh, I really noticed it after, yeah, last year I started doing that. Like, okay, some songs, uh, <laughs> I, I was pretty good at downpicking and now I'm not. <laughs> Only then you notice after two years of not playing shows. What do you do to work on it? Just play the songs? Yeah, but with warming up. If I don't do that, then I cramp and I cannot get through the song, the fast songs then. So I'll play some uh, slower songs uh, to uh, to warm up and then uh, then I can do it, yeah. But it took a few weeks also to really get the high, like the 210, 220 BPM uh, down picking stuff. We have a few songs that, that go that fast. That's fast. Yeah. That is fast down picking. Yeah. So, but I really want that because, yeah, well, my, my solo album is not going to be that fast, but I want to have all my skills available for any idea that comes up, you know? It's good yeah. to, to be in that vibe again. It makes everything better when you don't have a mental block about a physical barrier when you're trying to record. Yeah. You feel like you can own everything. That's a great feeling. Yeah, true. Or you can b go back to your techniques of back then and give it a twist, you know, uh, anything. I've gone into the studio both feeling super confident and then also not. And it is a, two completely different experiences. Completely. One involved me playing my absolute best and the other I felt like, I don't know, felt terrible. I don't even know how to describe it. Like this was taking way too long, you know, just to get stuff done. Whereas before I could just do it. It's a very different feeling. And I'm sure that it didn't sound nearly as good as it would have or could have. So um, I definitely think people should be on top of their fucking game when they go to record. I know you feel like that, Brown. Yeah, I actually just retract the guitars for another new song that's going to be coming out soonish. Why do you retract them? Uh, well, I re I recorded the song like maybe a year ago. I finished writing it, and I did record all the DIs. But I just part of me was like, "Ah, that was a year ago. I'm a year better now. Let's give this another shot." But like, even like you're never really fully prepared for the studio. No, no matter how much you've practiced, but at least if you put the practice in, you know that it's not going to be a mental block while you're in there thinking, "I could have practiced more for this situation." Yeah. It's just down to the day. You know, some days you play better than others. And <laughs> I don't feel like I played very well the day that I tracked the guitars. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I recognize that. Uh, with each Textures album, I said to myself, okay, with this new album, we're going into the studio. With this new album, I'm going to really prepare well and be really on top of my game when I enter the studio. And I did for what I thought I did. And then I entered the studio and sit next to Jochem, the producer, the other guitar player of Texas. And then it was like, oh my God, I could still practice much more, but this is, this is not what I want. <laughs> uh, it's not good enough yet. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, I still have to really work on some riffs or parts uh, in the studio, you know, and timing wise or precision, you know. But also, I think with each album, you, as a producer or as an engineer, you get more strict as well. Okay, now we're going really for 
really as tight as possible, as clean as possible. Uh, so that also grows, I think. Do you know what the most annoying part of the tracking guitar things that happened last week? I changed the strings on my guitar and then a noise started happening that I just could not <laughs> get rid of. Same string set, same gauge, same guitar. I snapped a string during one riff. So I was like, I need to change all of them. Brand new strings, by the way. I'd used them for about an hour and uh, changed them all. Same set. This fucking noise. And it wasn't going away. So then I changed the strings again and it was there again. <laughs> so that was, that was probably why the day was so frustrating. But yeah, just like little challenges like that, you know, like something as small as changing a set of strings can introduce a noise that just doesn't go away. I'm sure you've experienced that, AL, from tracking guitar players. and I, I just nodded for people. <laughs> you know, yeah, just since everyone's listening and not watching. Yes, I just nodded and closed my eyes. Because you, can, you, you have the remembrance of that complete stress, not being able to work out why. Everything's exactly the same as it was. The amp settings are the same. But it's not the same. Something changed. Something changed. But you don't know what. And it's the same set of fucking strings. And I was so mad. <laughs> yeah. There's one part I can't get rid of the noise from because it's in every single take. Guess you just got to get rid of the whole album. Got to get rid of the whole guitar. Like it, yeah. it goes. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> it's <laughs> just burn it. Maybe I need a fret wrap. Maybe fret wrap <laughs> fixes everything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that is what you need for that part. I tried it with tape. It didn't do anything. I'm sorry for your trauma. Yes, I'm. It's still hurting a few <laughs> weeks later. Yeah. I feel it. Well, Bart, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us, man. It's been a pleasure. Cool, man. Pleasure, for sure. Absolute pleasure seeing you again, Bart. It's uh, It's been too long. We should definitely catch up more often. Yeah, man, for sure. I always enjoy catching up with Bart and hearing how he can tame a 5150 without a noise gate in front is just complete insanity and something that we should all really strive for. Putting ourselves in situations that make us question how good we are as guitar players, exactly what we need in order to increase our skill level. I invite you to riff hard to come and do exactly that. If you're struggling with getting good takes on your songs or you're not able to play something you've written or if you want to focus on songwriting and technique, we have everything at Riff Hard to make you a much better guitar player, guaranteed. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>